This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You are listening to Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford and Salut Babette. Beyond Zero is a climate action think tank and this show gives a platform to people in the community who are working and thinking furiously how we can cope with climate change, the emergency. I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we're broadcasting belongs to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Tonight we'll talk about healing the land. People terrified by bushfires, losing everything, Indigenous people fending off coal and gas projects on their traditional land, and all of us grasping and clutching and looking for ways to be more connected and to understand the complexity of what we need to do before it's too late. We must never forget those people on the front line and they need all our support and there are many organisations that are working to help them. So please join up, I can't list them all. I'm going to ask Dr Janara Goreng-Goreng about how she nurtures leaders in Aboriginal law and spirituality. Everyone says now that we need to be more connected to the land to protect it and let it protect us. But how do Westerners or white people get our heads and hearts in the right place? Then we'll hear from a panel at the Transitions Film Festival. The speakers are Glenn Lochry, who's a Wiradjuri man, Vanessa Petrie from Beyond Zero Emissions, and a man from Arup who specialise in water engineering. But first, here is Greta Thunberg speaking in the EU Parliament. I had to ask Babette what the chairman said about Australia before Greta spoke. She replied straight away and she said... Well, he told Greta, you are not in Australia, where the Prime Minister is a climato-sceptic. You are in France, where you are, we are doing the Green Deal. So now you know what the French think of us. Climato-sceptic. Shame. This didn't stop Greta, however, telling them that they were only pretending to take action and that they need targets for 2020 and for each year following, not 2050. No society is transformed. No society can respond to the kind of challenge we face on the climate if we do not take on board the energy coming from our young people. And you embody that in Europe and at the world level. But, Greta, do not be mistaken. Today, you sit before the Environment Committee, which is right at the forefront of the climate struggle. You're not here in the White House with Donald Trump. You're not in Australia with a uh, climate-sceptic Prime Minister. You're not with Bolsonaro in Brazil. You're in Europe. We are building the Green Deal. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am a climate activist and a part of the Fridays for Future movement. And for over one and a half years, we have been sacrificing our education to protest against your inaction. And in September, over seven and a half million people all around the world took to the streets, demanding you to unite behind the science in order to give us a safe future. Then, in November 2019, the European Parliament declared a climate and environment emergency. You said that the EU would lead against the existential threat of the climate crisis. And this was wonderful news. When your children set off the fire alarm, you went outside, took a look and smelled the air. You stated that, yes, the house is actually burning. This was no false alarm. But then you went back inside, finished your dinner and watched your movie and went to bed without even calling the fire department. I'm sorry, but this makes no sense at all. 
When your house is on fire, you don't wait a few more years to start putting it out. And yet, this is what the Commission are proposing today. When the EU presents this climate law and net zero by 2050, you indirectly admit surrender that you are giving up, giving up on the Paris Agreement, giving up on your promises, and giving up on doing everything you possibly can to ensure a safe future for your own children. Because this law is based on an insufficient CO2 budget that in reality gives us much, much less than a 50% chance of limiting the global average temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And any climate law or policy that is not based on the current best available science and does not include the global aspect of equity nor the annual emissions reductions needed starting now will be completely insufficient, of course. Such a law sends a strong signal that real sufficient action is taking place when in fact it is not. The hard truth is that neither the awareness nor the politics needed are anywhere in sight. We are still in a crisis that has never once been treated as a crisis. We do have a lot of brilliant solutions. We have unprecedented wealth and financial assets. We have a lot of goodwill and countless of people ready to do everything they can to help. What we do not have is awareness, leadership, and above all, time. Our rapidly disappearing carbon budgets are the bottom line that sums up the current best available climate science. No matter how insufficient they may be, as they don't include tipping points, most feedback loops, equity, nor additional warming hidden by air pollution, they are still the most reliable roadmap we have to safeguard the future living conditions for humankind. But the content of these budgets have never been taken into account in today's politics. It has never been communicated in mainstream media, and yet here you are trying to create laws and policies, once again ignoring it. Pretending that your plan or policy disregarding the United Science will somehow solve the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. Pretending that a law that no one has to follow is a law and pretending that you can be a climate leader and still go on building and subsidizing new fossil fuel infrastructure. Pretending that leaving out the global aspect of climate justice and equity won't risk breaking up the entire Paris Agreement. Pretending that empty words will make this emergency go away. This must come to an end. No policy, plan or deal will be nearly enough as long as you just continue to ignore the CO2 budget which applies for today. We don't just need goals for 2030 or 2050, we above all need them for 2020 and for every following year to come. We need to start cutting our emissions drastically at the source now. Your distant targets will mean nothing if high emissions continue like today's business as usual, even for just a few more years, because that will use up our remaining carbon budget before you will even have the chance to deliver on your 2030 or 2050 goals. And since these negative emissions technologies that this law fully relies on don't exist today at scale and perhaps never will, we simply need to change our behavior, change our society. And this is the uncomfortable truth that you cannot escape, no matter how badly you want to or how hard you try. And the longer you keep running away from that truth, the bigger your betrayal towards your own children.
The EU must lead the way. You have the moral obligation to do so. And you have a unique economical and political opportunity to become a real climate leader. You yourselves declared that we are in a climate and environment emergency. You said this was an existential threat. Now you must prove that you mean it. And we will not be satisfied with anything less than a science-based pathway which gives us the best possible chance to safeguard the future living conditions for humanity and life on Earth as we know it. Anything else is surrender. This climate law is surrender because nature doesn't bargain and you cannot make deals with physics. And we will not allow you to surrender on our future. This song is called Houses on Fire, which is inspired by Greta Thunberg's speech. My house is on fire, will you call the firemen? Will you break down the door and help me out? There's no escape, the world outside's on fire too. And the firemen aren't coming, they've run dry today. Defunded just like health and science and education All the kinds of innovation we really need The smoke is rising and we're rising Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire We're on fire Cast your vote with money Buy only organic and fair trade, honey Better yet, don't save the bees, save the trees Do something to pay off your meaningless degrees Cause we'll all come to nothing If we don't start holding the powerful accountable For letting our house burn down While they sit counting their green Instead of acting on the science That's been coming and coming and coming and coming and coming and coming Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire We're on fire We are the children and we won't sit down This is our future, it's our turn now We are the future, we are, we are We are the children and we won't sit down We've been waiting, we've been patient now We are, we are. Make like the house is on fire. 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 We're on fire. Make like the house is on fire. Make like the house is on fire. Make like the house is on fire, we're on fire. It's the age of the millennial and Gen Z too. We're on fire for our future, it's on fire too. We've been waiting, we've been watching, we've been prepping and we're judging. Age of the millennial and Gen Z too. We're on fire for our future, it's on fire too. We've been waiting, we've been watching, we've been prepping and we're judging. It's our turn now. It's our turn now, it's our turn now, it's our turn now. Make like the house is on fire, make like the house is on fire, make like the house is on fire, we're on fire. Make like the house is on fire, make like the house is on fire, make like the house is on fire. is on fire make like the house is on fire make like the house is on fire we're on fire thank you that was Carmen Mojito singing Houses on Fire um, tonight we've got Dr. Janara Goreng Goreng. She has been an academic at five Australian universities and has worked overseas in many countries from Denmark to India on healing our spirits worldwide. And she inspires engagement between Indigenous and other people through her songs and healing history. 
I met her in Canberra at a conference on rethinking our democracy, which has excluded so many voices and is now in dire need of a fresh sort of leadership. So welcome, Janara. Would you like to start? I'm so glad to hear you. Would you like to start by telling us like a more personal description of yourself than that rather standard one at the top? Personal description. Well, um, I'm a 62-year-old Waka Waka and Woolly woman from Central Queensland. I live in Canberra. I'm a retired academic. I'm not quite retired. I teach part-time. I run my own company called One in the Global. We do transformational sacred leadership work. And I'm quite involved in um, green politics and um, community service in my life. I'm a grandmother and a mother. And I'm I'm very interested in making the world a better place for people to live in. Yes. And and to ensure that people who are marginalised and don't have as much as other people are looked after by our society better than we do now. Yeah, well, since uh, the time I met you, which was in November, we've had these massive bushfires, or the bushfires that were just going then have now just exceeded all expectations, and I think a lot more people are feeling very frightened and not just frightened about the... The, the threat, but also the fact that political leadership doesn't seem fit for the job in front of them and fossil fuel money is corrupting their minds, I would say, and they're subsidising new coal and gas and we've spoken to people up in the Beetaloo Basin in Northern Territory, for example, and in Wanganjagalingu Territory and they are really leaders there and yet they're so remote and people in the city can easily forget them and it's the battle of our lifetime, I think, this climate change, how to hold it, hold it from going over the brink. And I'd like you to talk to us about how we, many of the listeners are leaders like that, but also those leaders up on the front lines, how can they remain strong and how can we support them to be really transformational leaders? Well, I guess, you know, it takes um, a whole community to do this kind of work. So I think it's very important that we all know that this is a this is a global issue and it's also a national issue. It's an issue for all of us. We are all going to be affected by it, so we all should be supportive. You know, people are often apathetic and things that don't affect them, you know, immediately and straight away means that they don't really get involved. But I think since there's been huge bushfires and now lots of rain and flood, I think people are beginning to understand that the the earth is starting to really react to all the negativity we have and it's important that we start thinking about how to bring some balance back and bring harmony and we need to do that between each other and our own relationships in our local and regional communities as well as our national community. So I think we all need to change our attitude a bit and not be so derogatory to other people who are concerned and especially children who are concerned about their future. That's right and one of my cousins is an an Aboriginal woman and she said she works in a hospital and she said they've got a policy of kindness and just that kind of enables people and reminds people to actually just be careful how they speak. Is that the sort of thing you're teaching? Yes, of course. It's important to maintain harmony. We have a law in our culture called Kanyini which is the law of harmony and unconditional love and it's important it's important that we um, that we maintain it. Well, but how? If this you... is how we maintain the earth from not becoming climate affected. Mm. But if you're working, say, in a public service or in the, a council or in a community a group, you know, how can you start putting in place this kind of connection with the earth so people are careful and are not making decisions that have continued disastrous effects? Well, it's a process of education, isn't it? Like we live on the land as if we have no connection to it because in Western culture it's a property, it's a piece of property that's, um, that is about money. Whereas if you have a spiritual connection to the earth, a more sacred connection where you actually, you actually connect to it as a basis of providing your livelihood, you know, it provides your food, it provides your housing, it provides your way of life. So if you have a different understanding and a different connection to it, you're going to treat it differently. So we need to educate our children 
from a very young age that the earth is our mother, that the earth is something living and breathing that we have to take care of, and that the rivers and the trees, the mountains and the oceans are not just there for us to to plunder and not take care of. Uh, Western culture needs to completely change its attitude to the earth and what we do to the earth in order for us to treat it well so that it can be there for us. And it's, you know, it's many of my elders years ago used to say, you know, if you rape the earth, if you destroy the earth, if you dig it up, if you do dreadful things to it, it eventually is going to turn on you and start sending natural disasters your way as a way of telling you that you can't do that kind of stuff. You can't destroy it. You can't fill it up with rubbish. You really do have to take care of it. Well, I've noticed, you know, I go to a lot of these different climate forums for this radio show and I've become very interested in the changes that are happening. It used to be just like a welcome to country and then the Aboriginal person, you know, we'd say thank you very much and they'd go off and it would go back to being the same old fairly hard-headed talk. But recently, I've noticed, in recent couple of years, there's often an Aboriginal speaker and people seem a lot more receptive. And I wonder, what have you discovered in Aboriginal culture that can sort of help us navigate our way from ideas like you said before, like I own the land, to something more like I belong to the land? How can you help us have that transition? What do you say when you do those um, meetings about uh, healing? Our spirits. Sorry, I didn't hear that. What, very what well, do you what do you just... what do you say to groups of people who are sort of locked into a fairly hard headed space, and they need to be reminded that they don't own the land, that they belong to the land? How do you help them? Well, you know, some people you just can't tell that to; they're just not going to accept it. But I think there is a renewed understanding amongst people that um, a movement is definitely increasing that people are beginning to understand that the earth is not something that you can just treat in such a bad way so so i think you know there's a there is a change in the way people think and you can't do anything with people who just don't get it like there's nothing you can do about that you just have to live with that you have to do the best you can and work on work on the people that you can have an impact on well, what do you do? What do you do when you're invited to a forum? You know, how do you start? When I'm invited to a forum? Yeah. Like, well, I usually, I speak my truth. I say what I think is going on. And, you know, if people are able to, are able to take that on, I find people are very, um, very, what do you call it? People are very open and and, and certainly very, um, interested in in these kinds of things. People are, are very open now to the sorts of things that are important in the environment, and so I think there's definitely there's definitely a new a new world going on now. People are definitely much more open. Children are, are more open because of things that have happened around them, and because there's much more interest. Mm. Well, in uh, what's going on in their world, they're more interested in their future. It's very urgent because this bushfire alone seems to have wiped out great numbers of ecosystems that may never recover and wildlife that we've hardly known was there. And meanwhile, people are in the cities looking at their computer well, screens. The thing is about these things, but also this is. Um, this natural cycle you know if 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 groups of animals are going to become extinct they're going to become extinct you can't spend your whole time and effort ensuring that people they don't become extinct it's it's the natural survival and order of things that naturally some animals will become extinct and yes if we can look after others and make sure they don't well that's great um but there's nothing, like, Aboriginal people are much more stoic about these things, you know. Civilizations come and go, animal species come and go, flora and fauna come and go, humanity comes and goes, different cultures come and go. That's the natural cycle of things over centuries and generations. We've lived with the world long enough to know that that's how it is. And we have the kind of culture that 
that is about looking after what's here in the here and now. And then if something passes, it passes. You can't do anything about that. It's the natural order of things. So we can't sit around lamenting about it. We can do our best if we want to take care of them. Of course, it's very part of modern culture now to, to ensure that there's no extinction. But it, it's a natural cycle and reality of the natural world. So I guess we're just a little bit different in our attitude towards it. Yeah. Well, that's my view anyway. Right. Well, when you travelled to other countries and maybe met other Indigenous people, I know a lot of those people, like in the northern, like Alaska and northern um, Arctic Circle people up there in Siberia, those people are very much on, they are seeing the landscape that they've known for thousands of years just disappearing, disappearing rapidly. I mean, we're seeing it here too with the Barrier Reef more or less dying in front of us, but... Uh, but what do you learn from them? What other um, ideas do, have you picked up from people? Is there any commonality between Indigenous people who are feeling like they belong to the land? Well, of course, there's a commonality across the world where Indigenous nations, the First Nations of most continents, have been here longer than the Western people who have come later to their continents or have conquered them or colonised them. And they have a great deal of long history of living very close to the earth and the land. You know that. Northern America, Southern America, everywhere. Africa, Asia, there have been civilizations of Indigenous people going back thousands of years and generations. And, of course, they have a similarity in lots of ways. Their spirituality, their heritage, their cultural connection to the earth, and they have their differences as well. Of course, they're interested in the earth being looked after and have for generations lamented that white people or people who colonised or conquered invaded their countries have not really looked after the land or the earth. So that's the reality. And we do have those similarities. We want to have more power over looking after country. That's why Aboriginal people or Indigenous people in other countries fight for their rights to their land because they feel powerless because of that spiritual connection is much deeper relationship with the land than white people have. It's not property to be bought and sold so much as uh, it's our living, breathing planet that we have to take care of or we will not survive as a human race. And, and people who are disconnected from the land cannot have that kind of feeling. And so it's really... We feel it's our job to educate people and to share this knowledge, show people how to look after the land so that they can live properly with it. The new generation of young people are much more interested in this. It should be part of our education system, how to live with, look after the land, learn about Indigenous culture and how they look after the land. Imagine if we taught all kids at school fire management like, and, and just would be such a a useful thing. So I think, yes, there's a whole world global movement of Indigenous people who believe that we need to take care of it in a better way. And that the current climate change and the current things that are happening are things we've been telling the human race for a very long time are going to happen if you don't look after the land. So how often can you say that? We just have to keep saying it. Oh, I know. Well, we we do it too, and there's all the climate action and environmental people are starting to say it too. But we want to have the the depth, you know, to go the long distance, as I know I would say Aboriginal culture has had its holocaust in Australia and you've survived. The people who have survived do have this kind of grace about it, equilibrium, you know, it's not, as you said before, it's stoical and that's what we need to learn. But I'm sort of a bit aware I might be asking you the wrong questions. What would you just in the last few minutes like to say to our listeners about climate action, because many of them are taking all sorts of climate action, but to to ground them, to take the ego out of it, to last the long distance, what do you want to say to them? Yes, well, I just think, you know, start thinking about living in harmony with the earth, getting putting your hands in the earth, you know, lying on the earth, feeling like it is your mother, like it's a living, living and breathing thing. Start to feel like how important it is to talk to it, to share, to look after it. To have that sense of a deeper connection, a deeper spiritual connection, you can go out into the bush and just sit and deeply listen to the sounds, to the birds, to the animals. You are not, you are not separate from this. You are part of this, and it's very important to be in sync with it. 
also go and develop that relationship and start to live in harmony with the earth and be careful what you do. Don't just drive across it or dig it up or throw rubbish into it. Think about it as if it is a human breathing thing and that if you just throw rubbish in it, eventually it's going to start choking and dying. You know, we see the earth like a human being. Its kidneys, its lungs, its waterways are all part of a system that has to be taken care of. So develop that relationship and then you will feel different about what you do to it. For sure. Fantastic. Thank you. That was very good. I I think that's advice we can put into action straight away. So thank you very much for that. Oh, you're welcome. So thank you. So nice to talk to you. Yes, it is. And that was Dr. Janara Goreng Goreng, and I hope we hear from her again. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au Let me just acknowledge the First Nation people on the land on which we meet today. Look, I want to say that First Nation people have been living on this country for thousands and thousands of years. 40% of New South Wales First Nation people lives along the Murray-Darling. Those communities are now suffering. Those communities are now feeling the brunt of what has happened to our river. Where is our rights to the water? Where is our our human rights to clean drinking water? First Nation people are now struggling. They see the devastation of our rivers, the devastation of the environment, the killing of our animals, our birds and our wildlife on the river system. First Nation people have been connected to the land and the environment since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. What have now happened to the river over the last 250 years? There is a crime that's been committed. Now we've got to make them accountable. My people, I said, are now suffering. Why are they drinking water that's unacceptable? Shame. Shame on this government. My people rely on the water that fed the land. Water is life. Water is the blood of the earth. Water is our blood. And water is also your blood. The water in those rivers gave us our food source gave us our medicinal use. It sustained us for thousands and thousands of years. Now it's dead. How do we bring back the 50-year-old cod, the long-necked turtles, your yellow belly, the aquatic life, and the animals to the river when it's dead? That's the reality. When we've got a sick river, we've got a sick community. When the river's dead, our community's dead. Like I said, when our totems die, we die. It's a tragic. It's something that we all need to work together and fix. Look, we've got the, one of the oldest man-made structures in the world. The Bawara fish, fish traps. We call it the Nunus, the Bayami Nunus. Created by the great creator, Bayami. Look, the Bawara people have very significant connections to that sacred site. And there are lots and lots of sacred sites along the river that we need to protect and look after. Bewarrant is a place where I, where, where I grew up. I was born. My family grew there. I grew up there. My children learned to swim in the Darling River. That's where the, where the bow and meets the Darling. Um, my children learned to swim and my daughter's here today. Um, I took my kids fishing. I told my children about you know the Dreamtime stories, about the connection to the spirit and how they created created that and those stories but how do we now tell our children the story when they can't see the river physically how do I take my children my grandchildren down to the river to learn how to fish when there's no water in the river how do I pass down those knowledges that my old people have told me about the water when now that's gone so when the rivers disappear our stories, our song lines and all that disappears so that's why it's so important to us to get the water back in the river.
So it's our connection, our spiritual connection. Australia has violated international law. They have violated First Nations rights. I believe the First Nations people need to start taking this Australian government to the international courts to make them accountable. To make them accountable what they've done. The destruction of our rivers. This is another form of genocide that's killing my people and those people that are living along the rivers. I believe we need to get them in the courts. The only way we're going to get them. And that's where we'll make them accountable. And give back the rights to First Nation people. 2020 is a year of change. This year, grassroots people are going to now start to unite. People from the bottom end, from the bottom, we're going to start making decisions. We've got to stop listening from the top, because they're not going to do anything for you. It's about us now, grassroots people at this level, that's got to make a difference. So we need some kind of a serious inquiry with teeth to look at this. Now whether that's a Royal Commission or whether that's a federal ICAC that's actually capable of the job, something has to be done to get this business in front of the courts and what Bruce is suggesting is, is a part of that. Um, we just, we must have some kind of a legal redress here and some kind of a way of saying you can be a minister and you can play games but it's going to come back to bite you. And us ordinary people have to make that happen. So that's the Yama Gunna Barka t-shirts mean Yama meaning welcome, Gunna meaning ours, Barka meaning river. And on the back it said save our rivers. We're going to be selling those t-shirts. The funding, the, the money for those t-shirts are going to go back in the five communities. We want filters on every household in those communities and we want water tanks in every household in those communities. September, October. Last year we had the big corroboree on the rivers, Yamaganabaka corroboree. We had five, visited five towns, Walgut, Pawarana, Burkle, Kenya, Manini. We had 300 people on a convoy and each night on, 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 on the rivers we had about five or 600 people. This year, Yamaganabaka corroboree is going to have a thousand people in the convoy. This is going to be bigger. It's going to be bigger and better. Underman, this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. I'm not in, involved in the innovation business, I'm an Aboriginal, although we have in, innovated for 125,000 years. Um, I'm an artist, I have an interest in how the Aboriginal people, how we see the world and how we look to understand ourselves as a part of a balanced kinship network that cares for all of our cousins, including water and earth. And uh, I represent that in what I do in my art. And I do that in a way that is political in an attempt to get people to consider what needs to happen next. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for sharing an exhibition called uh, Water and Earth Are All. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you um, to create that work? and? I guess a little bit more about it so people can understand. Water and Earth are one was the name of the um, uh, the exhibition and it was made up of a number of artists, myself, some local artists and artists from Central Australia. And we were looking at the pivotal role that Water and Earth, Eli, I think referred to, uh, we have to listen to our mother nature. For Aboriginal people, the universe, the Earth, is our mother, it's our home, it is where we live, it is where we come from. We're born out of the ground under a tree and we live the vocation of a um, custodial ethic of responsibility and reciprocity between that tree and the tree we die under and take all that wisdom back into the ground. So one of the important things for me is in, in my art is to try and show that kind of 
uh, kinship network. We are not uh, just about human beings. Kinship doesn't refer just to our human network. It refers to our network with all of our cousins. All of our cousins are trees, plants, rivers, the rivers on the top of the ground, the rivers under the ground, and the rivers that are replicated in the sky. We are connected to all of that, and it's a way of trying to get that story through that we, unless we have this in balance, unless there is a, it's all balanced, it's in a wholeness, then we have problems, and we have witnessed and experienced those issues when we take things out of balance and continue to want to do so because we want our cousins, our mother, to produce more under greater stress without the support and the resources to live, for it to live healthily. It's a relationship of responsibility. We are responsible for it, it is responsible for us. It cannot care for us if we do not care for it. So we need to understand uh, how does this community exist and who, who, who does what? And um, we often take the view or take an approach that maintenance of a system is bad. But sometimes we can flip that on its head and say maintenance can create jobs or maintenance can create work. <coughs> maintenance can also create opportunity. And we can see that uh, a little bit in this film as well with the, with the women who are farming and, and the opportunities that are presented by actually having um, uh, you know, that sort of employment as well. I think that's important because what, what you're saying there, if we think about this in terms of responsibility and reciprocity, and for lots of Indigenous communities in Australia, one of the things that Indigenous men and women have is that they're disconnected from their land and they have no agency. They have no capacity to fill out their traditional vocation to care for their land. If you build in systems that need uh, maintenance, need care, need to be managed, you're suddenly building back for, for, for Aboriginal adults this sense of this is mine, this, I have agency, I am in charge of this, I'm responsible for this. And that builds as far as, as, is as important, if not more important, in some ways than the fresh water. Because what you've given back to that community, an important part of that community, is their identity. And that's really important. Working with our, our zero-carbon communities, probably the, the biggest thing is communities, they, they see a vision and they spend their time and energy on how to work it out and they're really focused. So we saw an example in India where he was talking about there's a lot of bureaucracy. So we talk about, you know, structures being over-engineered, the decision-making that puts them in the ground can also be engineered, but communities don't think like that. They just know what they want for themselves and for their neighbours. Um, yeah, and they're really focused on it. So we've um, like a, worked in a wonderful community in Nilambik um, for a few years now, Clean Energy Nilambik, who um, you know just started off just a core group of people and then building out, and they've developed like a vision for you know um, for their township and their surrounds, and they've um, by working together they've re-engaged the council on renewable energy. Um, I think they've sparked. The idea and now the council's pursuing putting a solar farm on an old landfill and all of these amazing ideas, you know, coming from just communities having a goal. I want to get to zero carbon in my community, what are the different things we can do? Um, they just see those solutions, I don't see problems. That's great, I just think that that is such an important part of um, the whole process in, in addressing a problem and that's something we often miss, you know, we We've seen that there can be roadblocks along the way, but, but giving people voices and, and keeping those voices alive the whole, pro the whole way along is so critical. So I wanted to ask all of you, um, if we were going to build a sustainable nation, if Australia was going to build a sustainable nation, what, what are the things that, what are the stories or the projects that you've seen that give us hope out there? There's so many amazing yep. things. I think um, a, a really recent thing, so with the bushfires um, effect, a lot of remote towns in Gippsland and other places in Australia still don't have access to electricity. Um, and so I've, there's been two groups. So one led by Mike Cannon-Brooks has just gone in there, partnered with a company called 5G, and they've just installed um, you know, a solar array and a battery that will last for 20 years while they're still figuring out how to reconnect the grid. And I think Gippsland Solar has also done the same and installed a kit in another fire 
affected regions. So just like looking at um, you know, what that community has gone through, just people have gone right, they need electricity, we've got kit, they rolled up their sleeves and they just put it in. Um, and I think just that can-do attitude, like I love it, it's what we need in India to provide uh, access to clean energy and clean water through really simple tech and also providing the ability for people to be able to uh, make a living out of selling that to their, to their neighbours as well within, within those slums. There are things like, um, there's, there's, a, there's an organisation called Skyjuice and Skyjuice um, uh, produce um, treatment systems uh, effectively similar to this um, system with a solar powered pump from the aquifer but where your water is not clean, under gravity you can effectively filtrate um, water uh, to produce clean drinking water again. And, th and, and that's an uh, initiative coming out of Australia um, and, and reaching out to, to lots of nations across the world. There's another one that was born out of Melbourne which is called um, Carousel. It's a, it's a solar distillation panel. It's this, this idea that a, a gentleman came up with in, in near Whittlesey, um, around the Black Saturday fires actually. He came up with this idea of producing this solar distillation, which effectively you can put any sort of water source in and based on solar, solar radiation, desalinate or distillate that water and produce really clean water. And it's, it's perfect for a small house, small community. And um, Rotary are involved in, in, in disseminating that. There's lots of really interesting tech really um, useful things that are happening around the world and, uh, and even some of it in our own backyard. It's like feels like we're at a pivotal moment. Do you think that, Glenn, where we could rebuild a sustainable nation if we just worked together and we unlocked incredible potential from people from all over the nation? I was just looking across this room and I can see you all. And the majority of people here are at least half my age. <laughs> The people sitting next to me on my right who are making a considerable impact in this area are well and truly half my age. I think that is the thing that I'm seeing happen across this country is that there is a set of stories and a set of minds and a set of attitudes that are coming up through our younger people who are beginning to say we will not deal with this stuff the way we've dealt with it before. We will think about it. For us, in my language, we have a word called winagara, which means listen, hear, and think. My father would say, walk your country, and if you listen carefully, it will tell you what you, it needs and what you need to do. This is what I'm hearing and seeing. The startups, the even the larger organisations that are finding more innovative ways to, to deal with these issues. I do think we are on the cusp of making some considerable changes. What we, we really need to think about in the middle of this is, please don't forget that, our, that our, our world, we are indigenous to the universe. And we are indigenous to the universe alongside the trees, the water, the plants, the flowers who are also indigenous to the universe. This is not about technology just for us. It must, it must provide resources and facilities and capacity for those other, our fellow creatures to be the treeiest trees they can be, you know, the birdiest birds they can be. But they can live and fulfil their life as well. So in doing this stuff, I think that's where we need to think about some about this. I also raise the issues and questions some of this technology happens where we're dragging water out of aquifers under the ground. Um, but if we're moving rivers on top of the ground, those aquifers are going to finish, disappear because what's underneath mimics what's on top. So we need to be careful in how we manage our relationships with those things as well. So in using this technology, we don't suddenly deplete without care resources that we'll need later. And it's important. As an Aboriginal living on this country, my song lines float through the air, my song lines run along the ground, and my song lines run under the ground. And if you cut down and break those, you stop the Indigenous knowledge system from working, and you make the world a different place. The fires is Mother Nature of a way of saying to us, and the drought, is enough's enough. Enough's enough.
you need to live differently. And I'm indebted to the brainier end of the human race. <laughs> I just paint pretty pictures. And I just tell ugly stories with acrylic paints. These people are the ones that are going to help us to make the next journey. We have a very great example in Melbourne, actually, which is the Western Treatment Plant. Western Treatment Plant started in 18, 1890, 1896, um, and effectively was a, a, a collection of lagoons built to treat Melbourne's um, wastewater, Melbourne sewage. It was called known as Melbourne at that time was known as Smelbourne um, because of the sewage issue, and so uh, Western Treatment Plant was built down at Werribee. And it covers 10,000 hectares of land down in that area. And um, it is, I think, the largest uh, migratory bird site in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, it's a Ramsar-listed wetland, Lake Boreas. It's a pretty spectacular place. You go to the sewer treatment plant if you're a bird watcher. It's, it's, it's really, really impressive. Um, so that is a working, functioning example. Treats about 50% of Melbourne sewage existing, operating right now. Problem is, it takes up 10,000 hectares. Not many places have 10,000 hectares of land ready for, for sewage treatment. So that's, in, in and of itself, probably one of the biggest barriers. The next sort of barrier I would, I would um, suggest is to be able to, you can treat water to a certain extent using natural systems, but in order for us to take that next step towards drinking it, I would suggest that there, for, uh, within our current health requirements and within the regulations and lots of stuff, there are additional steps that are required that would have to exceed, I guess, what we currently know we can achieve with plants. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. Tonight we've heard from a lot of um, Indigenous people who are, in, the way, in a way, leading now the climate action movement. They are at the front in many of the forums I go to, and I hope that what they've shared with us tonight is something that you can actually take in. It's not uh, airy-fairy. It's not about religion. It's something about a really integrated connectedness with each other and with the land. And I'd like to finish by taking a more international look. This story is about a woman in Canada called Ali Howard. She lived on the river Skeena and she swam its length. It was a demonstration of something she thought it was threatened by Shell's, the company Shell, their plans to drill thousands of gas wells which would contaminate local streams and threaten spawning grounds of salmon in the nearby Nass and Stikine rivers. She found a rich ecology of plants, animals and people and because she had swum the length of it and discovered all of that and the human communities living on the sides, she gave a voice a mouthpiece to the Skeena River. And I think they stopped the shell drilling there because she was able to prove what an ecosystem looks like. She said, Unless someone speaks for the salmon, for the rivers, the wild spaces and the rest of life, how will we stop the relentless drive of short-term profiteering that is turning our world into a wasteland? Our survival is at stake. And then there was also the scientist James Lovelock and he said The natural world outside our farms and cities is not a decoration. It serves to regulate the chemistry and the climate of Earth. The ecosystems are the organs of Gaia that enable her to maintain our habitable planet. And isn't that like something that Dr. Janana Goreng Goreng said to us at the end of her talk? We have to start looking at things differently and it's not as if we have to invent something. These understandings and ways of looking and reading the land are already existing among many different Indigenous peoples. We only have to go and learn from them. And so I hope you've enjoyed this evening's program. It's the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Thank you to Andy for helping me put this show together and good night and good luck. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West. When you think of community, 
uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a love that hold my head back, a frilly laugh. Thank you. The only. The only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take and we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough, this is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people, and you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them, and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. We should be talking, reacting to promises heard. If we just wait, be patient for the trickle down to work. Well, I don't see it. I'm skeptical of these empty words. They cannot save us, that's for sure. We wait for heaven to answer our call. We think. The market itself can do it all. Logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall. Not paying for the damage that we cause. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. This changes everything. Climate's changing, we know this, the science is now clear. Heat waves becoming more dangerous than they've been before. We must not wait to confront this recklessness of power when they claim it's a conspiracy of foes. This changes everything, don't you see? Don't you see? It changes our world. 